I struggle through a post-merger integration when you can glide through it? Why deal with the PMI integration challenges when you can overcome them even before they occur? Why move slow when you can move at pace? What are the world's leading PMI experts doing right now to achieve profit-accelerating integrations? This podcast will give you all the answers to these questions and many more. My name is Dudley Peacock and welcome to the 100 Days and Beyond podcast. Okay, welcome everyone to another episode of uh, your uh, 100 Days and Beyond. And uh, this in this podcast, we've got today, we've got, got McCool who has uh, joined us. Um, he's uh, got massive amounts of experience. Makul Mohanty is, is, is willing to share some of his vast experience and his, and his background. So let's just give you a bit of an update of who he is and, and, and so on, and then we're going to get, get to you directly from, from Makul. So welcome, Makul. Just uh, hello and welcome to the show. Uh, great Thanks, to see you. Thanks, for having me around. That's a big pleasure. So let's, let's quickly give you a background. So Makul supports sell-side raises from... 10 to 100 million uh, euros for IP-backed or asset-backed businesses that are technology-centric and looking for growth equity. McCool has a strong background in leading early-stage and Series A funding, investment uh, preparedness, and strategy engaging with VCs, family offices, and private equity funds. He has a proven track record of building portfolios, successful exits, and management buyouts and raising funds. In 2021, McCool has secured almost $100 million across four ventures. He supported second round funding for early stage technology startups specializing in clean tech from 2017 to 2020. McCool also successfully raised and exited two closed end funds from Germany from 2012 to 2017. McCool's buy side experience includes 15 years of lead advisory and big four PwC and EY in London, KPMG in Germany and Arthur Anderson in India, and that's a that's a very that's an excellent track record there, <laughs> McCool. So thank you very much for being on the show today. Um, I want to uh, just uh, get get going in terms of your uh, your background and where and where you're from, and give us a bit of an update. So where does the story begin? Um, well, the story actually begins in 1998 with uh, as a, a grad team hire in Arthur Anderson, but I could split my career into two specific parts. The last 10 years has been more sell-side focused on raising funds within the technology space. And that I would say between 2012 and 2022. And before that, about 14 years within the big four, largely within transaction services and corporate uh, finance. Um, and so um, to start the story, um, I joined in Arthur Anderson in 1998 as a grad scheme. And with a focus of qualifying as a chartered accountant. Um, in the first few years, obviously, we're a part within Arthur Anderson Business Consulting Group. Um, from there, I transitioned across to corporate finance in KPMG Germany between 2003 and 2006. Um, those were actually quite um, a great experience because those were the days where Scandinavian, Scandinavian private equities were investing in mainland Europe. It was the early days of project finance. It was the early days of renewable energy, lots of wind investment happening. And it was um, transitioning towards the big boom of 2008 in the private equity boom. Um, uh, and then from 2006 to 2012, uh, 2008 onwards, as part of EY, uh, when the private equity boom happened. And I think 2008 was the record year in terms of transaction, that's a bit, uh, half a trillion in private equity deals. And um, my focus at that time, again, was industrial 
and a lot of private equity transactions, um, supporting on the sell side, interestingly. And those were the days we did very large uh, BDD reports, we always call them vendor due diligence reports. And, and that was preparing very big businesses for large exits. Um, did a number of those um, before transitioning towards the quieter period between 2009 2012, um, where a lot of us who were within corporate finance, transaction advisory site, moved into the restructuring space, looking out for all the transactions we did between 2006 and 2009. So again, um, within the M&A space, uh, post-acquisition restructuring, again, private equity transactions, bank-owned assets in case where the equity had been wiped out, and also a lot of um, corporate uh, corporate transactions where big businesses were buying off assets of private equity. So in a way, um, been around, done the entire life cycle of a transaction in the first 14 years from you know, new assets to growth assets to large assets to <laughs> restructuring of the large assets. Um, so that was my career between 98 and 2012. Before um, 2012, I started focusing on the sell side aspect of uh, transactions. Um, I was part of a, a German Gold Coast End Fund. That was my first uh, fundraise. Um, we did, um, we were at that point looking at um, uh, providing finance, raising finance from the retail sector and applying that across a new technology that was being based on non-euro-denominated uh, uh, geographies that included Australia, UK, and Canada. Um, between 2016 and 2017, you know, we, we attempted a management buyout of the residual assets at the end of the Coast End Fund, and also um, uh, tried to acquire the fund management company, which obviously went into competitive bidding. And um, between 2016 and now, I've been focused on fundraising in the new technology business space. Um, I initially started within the impact and sustainability space, but gradually have diversified my interest across a different number of sectors, and I've been more of an opportunistic fundraiser rather than a sector-focused fundraiser, and looking at um, Series A uh, and onwards, including uh, project finance for new technology deployment. So it, it's a new kind of uh, space, and then securing funding um, across the uh, across the space from both from family offices, venture capital, include uh, and in certain case bank debt where possible and venture. Um, so across the instrument. So that's really been my um, uh, 24, 25 years of career split between like I said early years within lead advisory and transaction services where I got my uh, you know rolled up my sleeves and understood the mechanics of uh, M and A, and then after that the 10 years in terms of then focusing on fundraising and, uh, you know, sourcing capital for technology businesses. Um, I can't hear you, Ali. Uh, that, that's a significant uh, um, story there. So just just uh, for, for, for our listeners' the listeners' sake, um, you spoke a lot about your Series A, uh, sort of more of a Series A-based sort of focus in, in certain transactions. Just for, for, for our listeners, just give us a little bit of background. So what does that mean? What is a Series A as opposed to every, everything else that's out there? I mean, that's, that's a really, really good question, actually. And I constantly ask myself, what does Series A mean? Because, you know, when we started doing Series A 10 years back, a Series A would be a 2 million raise. Now, a Series A, it could be a 20 million raise. <laughs> so <clears throat> the magnitude has changed. Um, um, a Series A, in my, from my perspective, where there is a... Um, a startup has gone through a certain transition where there has been an angel investor 
there has been uh, some amount of follow-on investments there on, and it's the first professional investment coming on board, right? This is not retail space, but could be possibly a VC or a CVC. And also, the, in, um, the, the investor coming on at Series A is providing a, some value-add capabilities, right? And also validating the investments done from um, angel to uh, pre-Series B. Now, that is, is my perception of it, because I find it very difficult to... Um, categorize series A by quantum at this point. Mm. Uh, and, 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 and a prime example of it is a business that I worked with which had a lead investor who had you know, put in significant amount of capital, was almost about to uh, tip across 50% with the founders. Um, friends and family had uh, contributed uh, uh, additional capital at that point. The technology was what we could say TRL7, TRL8, you know, um, uh, which is a technology readiness level. Um, and they just needed that amount of capital to tip it over to the point where the commercial deployment was stopped, right? Now, that was their Series A, and their Series A was three and a half million euros. Um, but there are different uh, different definitions of Series A. Mm. Um, and now there's something called pre-Series A, you know, and pre-Series B, and, and I'm sure it'll change. But the idea is, it's, I think, the first professional investment that comes in, and not discounting angels could be also professional investors, but the professional a venture investment coming in to be categorized as Series A from my perspective, um, and uh, and it suggests that that is again, like I said, a loose terminology that's mm-hmm. you know it's been defined and redefined yeah. as venture space, and the startup space gets more um, streamlined. Okay, so so uh, would you would you say that there are are um, especially in the angel um, angel investment space that that where you're looking at Series A, would you say that um, angel investment has become more sophisticated over the last 10, 15 years? Uh, and, and at the time when it becomes more institutional at the Series A level, that you are, are potentially getting assets that are slightly better in terms of what the quality was maybe years ago? I mean, just maybe just give us a comparison on that. Well, the whole startup space really has changed significantly. And I, I can tell you it's changed year on year on year. So... I mean, it's an exponential change between what happened in 2018 versus 2020. So firstly, yes, the angel space has become smarter, more slicker. Um, a lot of angels or high net worth individuals have started grouping their capabilities together and uh, providing additional services to startups which they would normally not, right? So it's become more than a, a fund, and that's one bit. And the same has started happening from a family office's perspective. So yes, um, people are more aware or the opportunity, they understand the risk associated with the startups that there's likelihood of failing. They understand there is a huge amount of um, support system that could uh, help a startup uh, be more successful. So whether, you know, if you have um, a, a set of angels that have come together which have in-house legal capability, in-house um, um, accounting capability, back office support systems, and if they extend that to a startup that they can then focus on technology, it becomes a more valuable startup. It improves the, uh, the ability for it to be successful. So angels have recognized that they, you know, it's got to be beyond capital, but also recognize that if they group in together with other angels, they have the ability to provide these incremental uh, services that can you know, add on both value and the success, the possibility of success of the startup. So yes, it's a much more slicker, much more intelligent, it's a bit more intelligent environment. It's more an acceptable environment to be in from an investment perspective. Um, and, and you know, there is a clear understanding that there will be a hang-on to a professional investor at some point through that Series A. So there, there's an understanding that you need to prep 
that uh, uh, you know, I say asset or venture for that Series A, and there's an upside for the big angels um, in terms of their own values. Um, uh, so absolutely, you know, the angel environment is smarter, the VC environment has been smarter, and there's there's obviously then a growth equity environment which sets itself between the venture capital space and the private equity space. So it, it's kind of getting clear, definitions are getting clearer, and everybody is then leveraging of each other's capabilities to take the asset to the next level. So yeah, investment has become more um, streamlined in the in the uh, in the venture space or you know the high risk asset state uh, space. Yeah, that's I mean that that's fascinating to me. Uh, it's uh, it's got to be I think in, if you have a have a market and I mean maybe this is a this is a question for you. Would you say that the private equity and venture capital even family offices uh, and angels and high net worth individuals, would you say that it's it's becoming more of a mature market? I think I think you you mentioned uh, in a pre pre our discussion that that there are a few trends that that you'd like to share and 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 from from my impression is that that there's there's been some some let's call it maturity that's crept into the into the market and and maybe at the same time when you answer that if you could sort of open up your crystal ball and say and give us what you think is going to happen going into the future. Oh, well, I wish I had a crystal ball. <laughs> but look, I think I think it's very important to look at the market, right? And I think we've we've been through a number of cycles in the M and A market, and I, the last boom cycle was two thousand eight. Clearly, was two thousand eight private equity LBO market. But this market is, you know, a trillion dollar uh, just from a private equity buyout perspective, a trillion dollar market. Right? And third of those deals are in the technology space. Right? So third of these assets have come through the process of being a startup, a venture, a growth asset, to now a private equity asset, right? So one of the things is there's a huge availability of capital. That's very important, right? Without capital, there can't be any transactions. Without transactions, that will not, um, you know, um, trip down to the highest risk uh, asset, which is the venture asset. So the first important thing is there's a huge amount of um, capital in the second thing is that there is a better perception of risk, as I understand. And, you know, in the good old days of 2008, we did a lot of projections and we called it the hockey stick curve. And we had a lot of hockey stick curves on the um, um, on the revenue projections and the EBITDA projections. And hockey stick curves, you know, for your viewers is basically there's a sudden dip and suddenly it goes, you know, exponentially high, which is yeah. exponential high is the projection bit. And and now there, you know, and, and but now we are actually have a different perception towards risk and different and that allows us to be more aware of the fact that the risk we are taking has been built into the valuation in some senses. Hmm. So that's the second bit of what I would say. The third thing is that, that is there is a huge deal flow because the source of the deal flow, which is, you know, uh, startups becoming ventures, becoming post-revenue businesses, becoming profitable businesses, and then being in a position to be, you know, be either integrated into bigger corporates or be, you know, or, uh, or taken into the next level. So there's a huge deal flow that's happening. Also, right? Yes. And that's because there's a huge, there is more uh, awareness of the startup and the venture space. Right? And that's how we can say, you can see today with a, tri a trillion dollar uh, uh, value in the buyout market, a third of that has come from the technology side. Clearly, clearly from, um, clearly that has come into, you know, into being in the last 10 to 15 years. Um, so that's that's the that's the the third thing, and the, the final thing I think is that the types of deals have also changed. Right? 
you're looking at a lot more equity deals rather than equity debt equity deals, which used to be formerly the way to go, right? And that's because people have understood the, the upside on valuations. Right? Ten years back, 2008, we never used the word unicorn. Now we use that very often because we can see the the upside on taking that risk through valuations on uh, on valuations and the equity upside that they're looking for, right? And that's why um, the market has changed, but at the same time, um, the, the market has changed. At the same time, deal flow continues to be strong because the the uh, the, the availability of assets and opportunities has increased exponentially, and to match that, the availability of capital has match uh, has also increased exponentially. Um, you know, and I, 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 you know, I, I, I will, I continue to see that happening the next two to three years or four years. I mean, you know, at this point, you know, with my little crystal ball, and I see that happening because you know we are not yet done with allocating uh, um, the dry powder that there is in the market. There is record dry powder out there in the market, and that needs to find a home, right? And also, I see a very vibrant venture market where new new technologies are coming in, whether in the B two B space, B two C space. And so there is that, there is dry powder and there is still a huge pipeline of assets that have to come to the market. So the next two or three years, I still see that, I still see the potential for more transactions happening within the private equity sector and even in the venture space. Yeah, you, you, I mean, that's a very interesting stats about the one third being tech-based. Um, what is what is your your, your impression? And, and, and I'd like to lead at some stage <clears throat> into the... Um, Hundred days and beyond, which is, you know, what happens post acquisition? What happens post investment? But let let's just let's just delve quickly into into what I think is is something that that I really want your input on, and that is the shift of uh, traditional businesses that are becoming tech businesses. In, in, if if you think about uh, even I think the Macy's in in, in the US where where you know they're a traditional department store, but they've turned their business into a tech-based business. So it now becomes what what is the definition of a tech business? Because is it a is it a brick and mortar business that has become I'm going to use a crazy word called techified, have gone online, or is it a pure tech? As in you know now you start venturing into apps and and uh, e-commerce and, and even down into the blockchains and AIs and all that kind of thing. So maybe just just for the for the sake of our, our listeners, just to define what you mean by technology. I mean, to be honest, you know, if you look at Avocado, you know, 10, 10 years back, if you heard of Avocado, you'd think it's a delivery business, right? Now, mm. now, they have probably the most advanced robotics warehouses in Europe. Right? And a fair bit of that technology is theirs, right? Mm. But I think businesses want to future-proof themselves. Mm. Right. And this whole technology space is great, and they want to understand whether they would be relevant in ten years' time with a, as a brick and mortar business um, uh, if they did not adapt to changes. So they are, this whole investment into technology is future proofing themselves. Right. That's that's the first thing. You know, the second thing is also how markets change, and you you, you talked about Macy's, and again how retailers in the retail space are looking at online and thinking whether you know brick and mortar would be relevant. From ten years from now, especially with the churn that's happening on the high street, mm. so the first important thing is future proofing themselves, and that's what, one of the trends that you see is obviously um, businesses having their own CDCs, 
A lot more businesses are having their own CDCs because they want to look at investing into new technology that they can integrate into their own business. And that could allow them to be relevant 10 years from now. So that's that's an interesting play that's happening. There's another interesting play that's happening is where certain businesses are looking at creating technology in-house. So they've got um, they've got a kind of CVC, but they don't invest in these uh, in ventures outside their own business. But they try to create pockets of ventures in their business that they can spin off to create value. Right? And and that's quite an interesting play. Both of these are quite interesting plays. It shows the fact mm-hmm. that businesses have recognized. That um, that they have to have new understand what's happening in the technology space. They have to future proof themselves, and also they see the fact that they could be they could create value for themselves, right? you know, whilst creating uh, new engines. Mm-hmm. Now, <laughs> where does technology start? I think the critical point of technology, and I think, is is creating a product that's new to the market. Now, I'm gonna step away from the words disruption or you know disruptive uh, capabilities or whatever. That's new to the either. Uh, so, creating a product that's new to the marketplace, right? Whether it facilitates uh, the marketplace, so it could be logistics for you know technology within logistics or B two B, or it disrupts the marketplace in itself. Right? If you're creating a product that's um, uh, you know when you say if you're creating a product that's already there in the market, that's not technology, even if it's in the technology sphere. Right? So, if you have um, you know uh, you know Uber and Bolt. They're basically saying, you know, they're basically focusing on the same technology, the same market, addressable market space of, uh, of, 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 of taxis, you know, to simplify it. But mm-hmm. that's that's not new technology. So what we look, what I always look at is what is the technology that comes in, what's the problem it solves, and if it solves the problem, what value it creates for itself and for the market. Mm-hmm. Right. And once you have the uh, uh, once you have a problem that it could solve that creates value for itself and the market, what's it what's its route to revenue? Right? Who would its early adopters be? Right? Uh, what is uh, its um, what is its uh, um, uh, route to revenue? So how does it capture revenue in cash flow? Right? Mm-hmm. That's a quite an interesting transition. That when I look at technology, on, you know, uh, I, you know, I look at that space. Now, there's lots of new um, technologies that have created new markets. Right? And I, I say new markets, but you know, there could be existing markets, but they've kind of um, broke. They've kind of split the market. Now, um, uh, women's health technology has become a very big market, you know, and I think the ability to provide women's health separate from, uh, uh, you know, separate from just generic health has become a completely different market, and that's led to a lot of new female founders providing special specialist med tech, you know, specialist health tech, specialist lifestyle tech to uh, to a new to an existing demographic, but created themselves a separate demographic. That's technology as well. Right? So again, like I said, um, I understand technology as something as a product that is new creates a new market for itself and you know a, a, a new market for itself but also um, back to the first initial question on uh, corporates corporates have recognized the need to be future proof otherwise their survivability would be in danger and they would not know what when they become redundant mm. right? and that's that's one of the reasons they have to understand they have to absorb technology right? <clears throat> and they are actively looking at the market um, either at obviously at venture space which is quite bold but also at growth scale. So a lot of corporates are looking at new businesses that have now become post-revenue, post-profit, but haven't reached that haven't reached that point of scalability yet. And they're thinking, well, if we acquire this and absorb it, we'll create a new market. This could be actually the main business, and what we did could be um, the minority share of our entire you know, value chain. 
So um, I think this whole this is a great uh, time to be in the venture space and for, from both uh, from, from venture space because again back to saying um, an earlier argument risk perceptions are changing. Mm. People understand that this is a fund and you know there is nine out of ten chances it will fail. So people are entering into ventures with an open mind and also uh, with an open wallet, <laughs> which does help. But also when corporates come into the space and understand, look, if that technology, if, if that technology is, is, is something that works with our underlying product and we're able to integrate it into our business and, in, and provide them capabilities, you know, access to existing markets, access to existing customers, um, post-integration support, you know, things that startups struggle with, um, we can create value, we can create, create synergistic values and also, you know, provide another product that could at some point in the later stage, be our main product. So I think, um, again, um, like I said, technology is very hard to define. Hopefully I've done that it's half a decent job. But like, um, but the most important point is that most corporates have decided that they cannot not be a technology company. Yeah, so, so it, it, technology opens up uh, multiple opportunities for multiple people, for multiple uses, um, whether it's going into an existing market or creating a brand new market or answering a new need in the market that's never been answered before because it wasn't possible without technology kind of thing. Um, I want to ask you, uh, this could be a tricky question because what, what I've, what I've uh, in my experience, I've noticed that we have a multiple, uh, sometimes direction change. So every time there's, there's some kind of acquisition that takes place post-merger, while you're going through that process, you obviously start in the beginning with an idea, strategic plan of what kind of synergies can we create out of the target that we're going for. What potentially sometimes happens is, is you have different types of integrations that, that, that happen. So you start off with a plan and it could be a simple, let's call it a, a more of an arm's length type of acquisition where you literally uh, get involved in the entity, but it runs pretty much on its own under its own brand, and it continues operating. And you literally help and support that process all the way to the other side of the spectrum. And and this is the this is the tricky question: is just to, to understand where 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 you sit in terms of your philosophy is. Sometimes the the acquisitions in, in my mind swallow up a really good idea, and sometimes suffocate that idea because they've kept the idea for themselves. So, you know, if you take some of the bigger <coughs> players, the Apples and, and, and so on, I mean, they've bought technology to add into their own ecosystem. And that's pretty much the end of the, the growth story there for that, for that idea or that technology. So I want to I get, that's a tricky question. It's probably more subjective than, than anything else. But let me hear your opinion on that. To be honest, I have gone through a, a, a reverse merger myself. Um, Good old Alpha Anderson was integrated into Ernst Young in India at some point, so I, I've been a victim of a merger in terms of you know how two different cultures collide. Um, so at the point of transaction, and I've seen many of these, um, you approach an acquisition from a certain perspective and an angle. You could approach it from the fact that this will be a standalone entity that will run its course and will be exited, or uh, you could have the other end of thing where it will be entirely merged. Right? And I think that is a bit of investment banking and accounting approach to and operations approach to a transaction. It's a, I'm going to get married to you and hopefully this will be a very happy marriage, right? But we haven't started living in together. 
in a simple sense. And, and I think post-acquisition and process, before when you say 100 days after the first acquisition, a lot of home tools, you, know, you get to know a lot more than you actually had bargained for because the acquisition has happened. That's the first part. The second part, I think, is even if you have industrial processes that get integrated, <coughs> the most important bit people uh, forget about is two managements need to integrate also. So there is a lot of soft integration that is required. And there's always resistance to change. Right? So I have seen, um, I have seen um, acquisitions that have been acquired and then left alone, despite the fact that it was not part of the first, um, not part of the initial plan um, when the acquisition happened. And that's because there was a huge amount of pushback from the existing management. And, and obviously, <clears throat> nobody wants to disrupt management because the operating you know, required a business because it has value in it, and obviously there is some value from the management. So, and, and I have seen acquisitions which which have seen seen you know perfect merge um, integration within a hundred years. And I think we discussed this earlier. Is when you are when there is a corporate acquisition, an acquisition by a company of another company, and there is. Um, Significant, you know, and it's not in a through a bidding process. You have the ability to engage with the management and talk about how post-acquisition integration will take place, right? Because you know this is a, a, a discussion between two grown, you know, two grown corporates, grown up corporates, and there is not a third party that would possibly gazump this transaction. You can actually prepare for this trans that transaction to happen, and then have a post-integration process that allows the business to. Um, seamlessly integrate itself or have its post-acquisition plans carried out without too much um, disruption. Mm. The problem happens is when you are in a bidding process where, where you don't know to the very end, um, you know, it's a closed on the process, you don't know to the very end, you are, you are the winning bidder. And then you have acquired business and you have acquired a business and your first focus is to beat other bidders and impress the management on what the post-acquisition would look like because obviously the management have vested interest in staying on board post-acquisition and then you have to realize the realities of the fact that you actually now um, in partnership or in, in, in ownership of an, a, different, a separate corporate and then obviously the um, integration process takes much longer. Right? Um, so the first thing is from my perspective as I've learned is when a management, when a business approaches a, um, an acquisition, it has to have a certain plan ready execute post-acquisition uh, integration. Right? And that may not be a robust plan, especially if it's, it may not be a defined plan, but a, 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 a skeleton, a, a, a rough draft of what will happen needs to be prepared. Right? Um, but if you are not in a bidding process, there is a lot more opportunity to understand how you would manage yourself uh, post-acquisition. And it has you know also um, get the management of the um, uh, target on board as soon as possible before what would happen post management, and, it, and it's like it helps because in one of the uh, businesses that I looked at, you know, I was very surprised that um, it was um, it's two hundred million dollar acquisition. The parent company would be worth a billion dollar, and the management of the uh, uh, the target actually became the management of the parent business, and mm. that was pre agreed uh, prior to the transaction, right? And roles were defined. There was commonality. There was understanding of where synergies could be um, uh, synergies could be achieved, where value could be achieved, and there were also understanding about which which of the existing management team would not continue. And they were explained, and they were given a, a fairly nice uh, a golden parachute. 
So they had worked it out, and today, if you look at that business, uh, you could not make out that they went through that acquisition. It was perfectly streamlined. It was um, it was done in a very mature and sensible way, and was despite it being within the industrial products uh, uh, sector, the the soft uh, decision making and integration took place before the business integration took place. So when the management teams were integrated, the rest of the um, synergy plans, the rest of the operational plans uh, were executed within the plan of 18 months. So that's a very good example of it. <laughs> you know, um, in, in some other cases, like where I've seen where um, uh, where a German company bid for a very large um, consumer business in the UK, and where, where you know, was worth a $1.1 billion deal, and the transaction happened at the very last day. But you know, with twelve hours, there were four bidders, and in the twelfth hour, literally, and the twelfth hour, one one knew that he was the you know winner. They were quite careful about it. They kept they had spent about eighteen months um, with the business um, with the former parent kind of merged in. They did a separation over a period of eighteen months. They left the business for another eighteen months as a standalone business, let it stand in on its feet, and get, you know understand its own identity, identity, and then merged. It. And I think that was very again a very sensible approach, and they understood for about a period of thirty six months, that's three years, that value could not be generated because this transition had to happen. And in that case, it was about value preservation and capability preservation. Right? <clears throat> um, uh, so that's that's again um, that's again a part of the uh, you know a, a part of the process that needs to be understood and managed. And again, it comes from top level management, both of, from the target company and from um, the buyer. Mm. Um, in private equity, I've noticed there's uh, again uh, when you do a transaction, there's an urgency to rip it out and take it apart. You know, not rip it out and take it apart, but separate it as soon as possible. Right? Because in private equity, there is a fixed period before you do an exit or do a turnaround or do a value add, and obviously it's run by by financially focused um, seconders or you know, principals and partners who, who are who work on a Return on investment from from their investment, right? So a private equity transaction can be an entertaining transaction, especially if it's a carve out. That's one, <clears throat> uh, or if there is a total uh, a complete buyout. That's number two because um, the focus changes significantly. If you have a corporate owner, I mean, you know, corporate shareholders, and you have, and you have private private equity owners, your perspective changes quite quickly. Um, again, my experiences that have been that. Has not I have seen things where it has not worked out. It has not worked out because the private equity principals have oversold what they could do with the business, which was operationally not possible. So there's a mismatch on how you um, do the hockey stick, or the management is not would not like to buy themselves buy themselves into a hockey stick. They like to keep the targets low and then achieve more than the set uh, targets. But um, again, these are all anecdotal. Right. <laughs> Lots of new private equity teams have very good ops teams. They are very uh, sector focused, so they can bring these ops teams into the sector, uh, into these sectors. And that's been happening actually for more than ten years. You know, it's more uh, <coughs> since two thousand eight that they realize this can't be a complete financial transaction. There has to be a value add. The value add has to be in with a team that has you know significant strategic capabilities, significant ops capabilities, uh, cost saving capabilities. Um, uh, Commercial capabilities, so they bring in a, a third-party team that's separate from um, the transaction team. So that has also happened in the private equity space. Again, back to what you asked about. Like I said, it's, there's no hard and fast rule. Every transaction is different. You know, 
people do a lot of work on post-integration merger, post-integration support, and it doesn't work out. See, some people wing it, and it goes pretty well, and it's all <laughs> dependent on what the quality of management at the top level is, and how much buy-in you had from the target. Uh, that's, uh, I mean, that's a brilliant answer. Thank you for that. I mean, that, that's 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 given a really good, uh, a good view. So, so it's a pairing thing, and 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 I, and I imagine that that there's a uh, there's some level of introspection that has to happen from a buy buy side or an investor point of view to say, who are we? What is our culture? And what is our sort of view of the world? And see if what we're targeting to invest in is a bit of a match. So there's more connection from a, a people and a culture and, and and that sort of point of view up front. Uh, and I'm not I'm not sure what is your what is your your experience. Do do people do a little bit more self evaluation before acquisitions, or do they purely you know focus everything on targets? Is it more about what the target is like? You know, 2008 2009 onwards, we saw a lot of assets with which the equity had completely been wiped out and banks went into all of the assets. Now these are operating businesses that employ thousands of people. Right. And suddenly, um, the creditors have become, um, you know, creditors have become uh, um, business owners, right? And that I saw created a lot of value destruction, you know. And that was because suddenly, you know, suddenly banks who have, you know, their focus is on the debt that they have provided to the business, not only, you know, are now responsible for this business and responsible to make sure that there is enough cash coming in for at least the interest payment, if not capital repayment. So I think that was a quite good example of where you need the you know you need buy-in from the target and targets management. You need to have an understanding of what you're getting yourself into. Like all you know, from private equity's perspective, you know, or, or um, buying a business is like buying a yacht. The happiest day is when you buy it and when you sell it. Right? In between, you have to provide value to it, right? Mm. And, and otherwise, you're just you're, you're just paying cash to buy a cash flow. Mm. Um. Have a corporate perspective, it becomes more complicated because it's marriage, right? Mm. Even or, or an adoption, whichever ways you look at it, right? And and then it becomes how do you how do you um, uh, management is interesting because it means that you have responsibilities towards the corporate that you've acquired, and yes. adoption is also that you have you have the responsibility to provide guidance and support and manage manage their expectations with your own objectives, mm. right? So 2009 um, and 2010 were interesting because I saw a lot of businesses which I thought were fantastic businesses and have always been fantastic businesses suddenly lose shareholders and be, you know and be run by banks who are traditionally not they, their job is to provide debt not to run businesses right so uh, I think it was an interesting eye opener from my perspective and and it also showed that how uh, how much pressure it put on the management to create new um, revenue streams, new cost-cutting capabilities, new, you know, either you, they were under, they were under pressure to raise a top line and then reduce costs. So it, banks effectively without, uh, knowingly or unknowingly, were asset stripping a, you know, a, a business. But what it was doing was business was not going to be sustainable in four years' time and their ability to pay interest reduced, their credit worthiness reduced, their ability to compete within the market reduced and and it so it it wasn't it, it it didn't help anybody any anybody's cause. So that's that's an important learning, and that's where I come back to is 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 a corporate shareholder or owner, whether it be a venture a, a majority shareholder, 
whether it be a private equity, a growth equity, whether it be a corporate, whether it be an individual has certain responsibilities as a shareholders towards the business to make sure that it provides support, you know, uh, management the adequate support to growth. Yeah, I, I, I've been part of a number of um, of restructures and so on, and, and, and often, or even when there's a, uh, let's call it, uh, the business is starting to look like it's getting into liquidity problems, and the bank steps in, and they send in these special teams, which you may have uh, heard about, and, uh, and rescue, yeah. <laughs> and and they, they literally start to strangle the, the entity further, um, as opposed to add much value, because everyone starts getting nervous, and, and, and so on and so forth, so it, that's, it's an interesting dynamic, when you have almost the wrong fit and wrong philosophy, not wrong, but it's misaligned for you know when, when you're entering a, an entity. So, um, I want to know more more um, about uh, about yourself, Nicole, around your your philosophy around once you let's let's go through uh, a, a process. Let, you know what is your what is your philosophy? Things like is hands on better than hands off? Is it do you do you feel more comfortable in letting team? operators do their own thing do you prefer a little bit more direction uh or but hands-on where, you know, where, where, where are you at in terms of a deal cycle um and even up to exit because you have you have been part of a few exits and 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 just to understand sort of that whole sort of start middle and and, and end when you've when you've left uh just go through that and some of your personal sort of feelings around um so I mean, when I look at ventures these days, you know, when I, when ventures come, uh, when I meet um, founders, and they say we would like to raise capital, you know, we, we want to raise capital, and I'm like, my my first approach to that is to understand what the business is about, because sometimes you can provide value and raise capital. Okay, and a prime example is a business that reached out to me, that's a B2C business, SaaS, and they wanted to raise capital because they wanted to, um, they basically facilitated um, integration between. Um, uh, loyalty programs and payment programs. Right? Mm. And my first focus to them, my, my first, you know, they wanted to raise about two million euros. And my, and my, my thinking was, wait, hold on for a second. Who are your customers? Where, what's your target customer? Like, Why don't I introduce you to X, who could be a customer and an investor? Right? So the approach is slightly different. The approach is not. The approach is to create value by providing mm. a solution and capital simultaneously. Right? Now, <clears throat> from my experience is it, uh, it's very, very difficult once you do an acquisition to be hands-on uh, as a private equity uh, professional because at the end of the day, you have to trust the management. And if there is a problem with the management, at the very inception, you need to replace the management. Hmm. And there could be a problem with the management. The management just got lethargic. The business is doing all right. They don't really care, but it has huge potential. So you, if that's the problem, you've got to change. You know, you've got to address that problem at the very onset. The, the the fact is we are financial um, we are financial wizards, but we are not oper- we don't un- we are not hands we don't understand the business very well, right? and that's that's very important to to recognize. We are very good in providing advice and support from the outside because we are looking from the outside, which is helpful for, for a business because they would need <coughs> they would need an honest opinion and honest feedback on how the business is doing. Hmm. But if you're rolling up your seams and you're in the business on a day-to-day business, uh, basis as a private equity investor or or even as a corporate investor, something has gone wrong seriously. 
And that's very important. You have to trust your manager. And again, as a venture capital investor, if a VC has taken on management responsibilities, and I have seen that happen on on startups, hmm. that is a, 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 a red light, a, 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 an indicator something has gone wrong, has seriously gone wrong. That's very important. So if you're a VC and you're hands-on with the, um, and you have to take quasi-management roles uh, in businesses, because the management's not up to scratch, your principles are being sucked in, you're doing bi-weekly meetings or tri-weekly meetings with um, the asset, something has gone wrong, right? And the first thing you should need to do is provide capabilities in-house because you need to have an arm's length away from your venture because so that you can make a very brutal decision whether to further invest or to come. Yeah, I want to I ask you a little bit more about that because, because I imagine... Uh, yeah, I, I spoke to someone last week, and they, they were saying that that the more you get involved, uh, it's almost a signal to management saying, you know, you're not doing a good job. So the more you get calls and meetings and 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 uh, questions, uh, the more you must realize that that someone's not trusting that you're doing your job. So that that was a I mean, that that just reflects pretty much what, uh, what you said. Yeah, if you're a principal and so, hands-on with venture. It's a problem because you will have 15, 16 portfolio businesses, right? If you're going to do three calls with one business, what do you? How much time are you going to dedicate on the remaining 14? Well, that that's the other thing is then then you start to neglect the other parts of, of where you should be focusing on. So that's a, that's that's a, that is a very interesting uh, concept. The other the other thing, and maybe just again from a personal point of view, if you've ever had to do sort of rolling up the sleeves and getting involved a little bit, don't you think that sometimes that that would skew uh, from an investor's point of view, your your sentimental or your or your emotional connection to the business being a success, you know, you tend to the more you work in it, the more sort of emotionally connected you become to the outcome. Uh, w- would you agree with that, or maybe you can expand on that? No, absolutely. That's why I said you, you've got to be in a position to cull, right? And if the asset isn't working or isn't uh, isn't performing. Um, then, uh, then the question is: Do you want to, you know, especially at the venture capital stage, do you want to do do another round of funding? Do you want to actually put that asset out into the market and push that from, a, a, you know, a, a push that asset to other funders when they know it's not going particularly well? So that's that's an important, yeah, part of it that you have to be certain distance from the venture so that you can have an objective view of how the venture is operating. Right? It's it's not a problem to roll your sleeves up and get, you know get your hands. Um, you know, get, get yourself involved with the asset, but that could be a secondment by a team member for a four-month period, as for example, as a CFO, right? Mm-hmm. And that's you know, so that that uh, that the um, the financial capabilities are streamlined, or getting a commercial director on board, so the the revenue base is 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 consolidated. You know, those kind of secondments work very well, but you can't be you know you have you have to the bird has to flee the nest, you know. And you have to make sure that the venture is a standalone venture in its own self. Now that we're again talking about um, financial investors and assets, and in a corporate uh, environment, you could be taken completely differently, where you know you have to, you always have uh, troubleshooting. Uh, you, know, um, you always have to do troubleshooting, or you always have to, um, um, you always have to provide additional support. And, you know, there's a lot more complexities because, again, like I said, it's a marriage slash adoption. Um, rather than a, more of a financial contractual relationship than a financial transaction. So, um, but you're right. Uh, I firmly believe you have to give, keep an arm's length uh, from the venture so that you can have an objective view 
um, and support it as and when it needs, but step out after that support is provided. There's one, there's one, one last extension I want to have on that before we move into the next topic, and that is when the target acquisition, you know, you do Series A, so so that they'll slowly be formalizing, they'll be getting a bit more traction, they'll having a, they'll be having a few customers, etc. Um, there's really two parts of this question. The one is that it, it appears to me in tech businesses the the time to the time to revenue is a lot shorter. Uh, if you take Microsoft, I think it took them forty years to reach a certain market cap. Where <laughs> you know, and, and and yeah, now now it's literally. I, I went to an event the other day, and 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 they they've reached they reached a billion in something like nine months, and it's it's like how do you do that? I mean, and and that speed at which things go. So that's the one angle where. They, they're clamoring over themselves to get skills and, and so on and so forth. And then you've got on the other side um, where you've got more, uh, let's call it family-based business. So you've got a dynamic difference. So you've got a business that's more nepotistic. They have the father, the son, the mother, the daughter, the cousin, the uncle, the aunt, everybody in, in the business because they can't find people that they can trust kind of thing. And on the other side, you've got a whole bunch of young people, inexperienced, they're just piling on people just to just to fill seats because they, they they're growing at this rapid rate. Give me give me a bit of your your perspective around that. The startups recruiting in startups is is a serious issue, right? Because actually, firstly, you're a small team. You have a certain ethos. You have a certain culture, and you want to be driven. You know, you have you know certain objectives, and it is a more riskier environment to work in rather than an established company because it may not last. So, startup cultures are very different. You know, there's a there's a heavy founder involvement. It may not be a clear hierarchy, but more flat hierarchy. Mm. But it's something that excites people these days, you know. Um, and so, you know, a lot of, uh, of people like that environment, like that uncertainty. Also, have understood that in some ways it's better to be paid less and have have more, you know, um, uh, more equity um, uh, ESOPs and other type of value based payments because they can see themselves have uh, you know be the first twenty employees and you know possibly make themselves a millionaire. So that environment is great it's a great environment but and it suits some sort of people right but also you are right you know i, I used to live in germany and you know, germany is very famous for family uh, family run businesses the mittelstand and it that also works quite well um in terms of i, I don't see I, I don't see anything wrong in family businesses also because um if you look at certain family businesses and even in india the next generation has actually done better than the first generation because the, the first generation has Provided the next generation with the capabilities, the education, the skill sets mm. to actually, you know, take the next uh, step in in the business, right? So both both work. The thing with startups and ventures, it's a dynamic environment. It's an unstable environment. So it's very exciting. It's a lot of adrenaline. Um, there's a lot of creativity. It's more collaborative. It's not traditional hierarchy. But also, it's driven by the founder. You know, the culture is uh, evolving. Um, is um, uh, it, it's uh, it's also very um, fast-paced and a high-stress environment because again, you are working in an environment where burn rates and cash rates matter. And the founder could be out of money and they couldn't have, you know there's a possibility in the next six months there's not enough cash in the business to pay salary. So you know there is a value to that. There is a reason why a lot of you know I would say younger folks are attracted to startups, but also people in their mid forties you know who have paid off their mortgages have a bit of pity left, have decided that actually I don't want to sit on a desk and, and report to a boss for the next, you know, 
20 years of my life, I have a little micro money, I want to invest it and I want to create value for myself, right? So, so, the, so it's a mixture of, uh, you know, people in the, you know, in the 40s and the 50s and I think James Dyson started, Dyson, you know, was first successful at 47. Now, that's a really good example. So, yes. So, so it, it, it's, 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 it's a certain set of people that congregate. I would say uh, gender-free, race-free and age-free that congregate in an environment that's, you know, in a venture environment. And um, and at this point, I can't think of a better place to be in, you know, uh, because firstly, the market is receptive towards such ventures. Secondly, there is capital being allocated for that venture. Thirdly, there's a huge number of success stories. And I think we focus on the success stories, less on the, the failures. And obviously, you know, you don't go to, um, sorry, you don't go to um, um, a, a casino table and say, well, there's 31 numbers to lose. I'm going to, you know, think about one number or whatever number that's going to come. So. That's a great environment to be in. And a lot of um, family businesses, and I'm coming from India where family businesses, a lot of um, second generation, third generation are actually out getting experience in, in, in these environments before they come back. Because they see the flexibility, they, free, they see the, um, um, the, the reaction time that these startups have, they see the creativity that these startups have, and they come back and say, actually, we should have some of these. Right? And that's refreshing old family businesses with new ideas. I love that. I, lo and I love that a lot. So so give us anything else that, that you think is a golden nugget that's a takeaway for the for, for the listeners. Something that they that they say, yeah, okay, well that that's a pretty good thing. I mean have you got have you got something, some some golden nugget to share or even a few? Uh, I don't know. I I, I I I I absolutely I can give you some steel nuggets, not getting good ones. I think the the critical point is if you are in this space, you're constantly learning. Hmm. You'll never see a deal, you'll never see two identical deals. You'll never see two identical transactions. You'll never not learn from, uh, you know, every time you see a new technology, you will not, you know, you will learn new things, right? And every time you see a new, you know, even from a transaction to a new term sheet, new SPA, new business plan, everything's a learn. So if you are somebody who's, um, you know, I'm, I'm quite ADHD, so if you are somebody who likes to have new things coming across your way. This is a great space to be in. Right? And I think I can't, I mean, I know, you know, I come from a school where a couple of my friends are absolutely private equity wizards and top of the game, New York Times articles happening about them. And and when I sit with them, they're trying to suck out information from me of what I did on my last deal. And I was like, but you guys are private equity wizards. You know everything, you know. You are the, the top punchers. And they're like, well, uh, no, no, we're not. Because I haven't, you know, I want to understand what's happening on that transaction, on on these, uh, on uh, on on deals of, of this size, on minority transactions, on um, what's happening in the medtech space. So this, if you're in this space, it, you're constantly learning, and if you can constantly learn, you'll do well, right? So it's about learning and persistent, but mm. persistent, you know. And I think that's that's the only thing I can say. And I think I, I actually don't know enough. Right? I, I I generally don't know enough, um, you know, I, and I, I would not call myself. As the smartest guy in the room by a mile, which is a good thing. That means I'm in the in the right room. <laughs> but um, like I said, this the M and A, the transaction, the venture space, the startup uh, market, all of this is gonna evolve, and it's gonna it's like a prism. Different things will happen. Nothing nothing that has been repeated in the past will be repeated again. So if you're a, a lifetime learner, this is a great place to be. Oh, that, that's that, that's marvelous. That's excellent. Thank you very much for the hour. 
I want to ask, and I, and, I, and I see how you, how passionate and enthusiastic you are about the, your topic and your, your career and all that. And it's wonderful to to watch and experience a, a, a conversation with you, uh, Mukul. I, I, I'm, I'm very keen to know, uh, Mukul is a young, young boy, um, growing up thinking, I don't know, playing, doing what, what you would normally do at, at a young age. And at what point, I mean, what did you want to become? And at what point did you realize that this is the thing? So I'm, I'm really, really interested to hear what that is. Um, when, when, I, um, when I was a kid, I, somebody, when I was in 10th grade, I wasn't very academically bright. And then somebody said, you should become a chartered accountant. I said, what's a chartered accountant? He's like, don't worry. Except a chartered accountant always makes money. I said, that's a good idea, you know? <laughs> <laughs> so I, 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 it really, really strange. So, uh, uh, you know, it stuck in my head, funnily. And then... I did uh, spectacularly well in my uh, A-levels, uh, uh, GCSE, uh, to the 12th grade, uh, mm. uh, to the point that I think my family turned up at school thinking I was lying about my grades. <laughs> Seven, eight, eight double stars or some, something quite ludicrous. I was also, you know. So I went to a college that actually was a great training ground for charter accountants in the future. Uh, and then I got picked up by Arthur and so, uh, you know, so I didn't actually think about it like that, but it just kind of fell into place. I have to say, when I moved into the transaction space, it took me a while to enjoy it, right? And so, one of the things I've learned in life is that um, you will reinvent yourself many a times. And there is nothing wrong with it. We will have long careers. We will be working for a very long time, largely because we live longer, right? And, and so, be bold to reinvent yourself. So, I started with Arthur Anderson, did consulting. I moved to transaction advisory. Um, and then from transaction advisory, I moved to lead advisory and sell side. Right? It took me a while to find what you know what I wanted to do. And, and the reason I think and I was talking to an old uh, former partner of mine um, in PwC, and he said, "Mukul, you are very good at structuring transactions. You should focus on that. You should be the tip of the spear." And, and I said, and, and his perspective was that because the transaction is done and you can't see what's past the transaction, you get bored. You you are, you are a bit like well. I put so much effort, it's done, and they, you know, it's like a priest. Uh, we help them get married, they go away, they never call us back, right? Uh, so, uh, um, and, and so that's the thing. You know, I, I'm, I'm quite, um, I became a chart accountant on women fancy, uh, and, um, but I never did anything related to accountancy, but it's helped me um, get into lead advisory. It has helped me have a lot of experience. And some of this experience just comes at your back when you come to a situation where, you don't know what to do. Say, ah, I've been here before. Right? In 2007, I was here before, and this is what I need to do. And then, um, like I said, the last 10 years have been excellent from sell side perspective because I'm, now I feel like I'm in the tip of the sphere where I'm able to um, communicate to the investor what the value of the product is, whatever that product might be. Right? Whether it be a venture, whether it be a fund of fund, whether it be, um, uh, uh, whether it be a, a transaction. So the idea of, you know, uh, articulating value, mm. something that I'm very, you know, um, that I'm keen on, and that's what I do. So, like I said, what, whatever you start off with, you will reinvent yourself many a times in, in your career. Just don't stop reinventing yourself, you know. And everything's not feedback. Just so, 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 leading from there, then, then, if you had to advise somebody that's thinking about entering this, this world that that you're in, um. What what advice would you give them? Because this whole reinvention thing is 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 a, is very very important, and I think it's happening more and more for a lot of people in their careers. And no matter what age you are, I'm guessing 
you know, but let's say no matter where you're at and you think, oh, M&A looks like a good thing or, you know, post-merger uh, integration, it looks like a good thing or, or even just sitting sell side, buy side or I'm in a company already, how do I put my hand up and say, hey, I want to be part of the internal M&A team or internal integration team. Uh, what, what advice would you give me? I think reach out to people. I think that's the best thing. That, that's the thing. And, I, and you know, I mean, um, when we were when Arthur Anderson, we were we were taught, taught two things. This is uh, when we were first year analyst, we were taught that there is no question that's stupid. If you don't understand, just ask. Just put your hands up. There's nothing that we you will never never be judged on a question. In second year, we were taught that when first years ask a question, no work that you do is important enough not to answer that question. Right. So I think that's the critical point. Is I believe that if you seek guidance, ask mm. people, right? And some people may not help you, some people may help you, but count on people that help you. And that's how you you actually get break into a sphere, you know. Reach out, be enthusiastic and be motivated and want be wanting to learn. Right? And that's the critical point. You know, and 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 that that's one of the reasons that most of my opportunities have come from people from references. And people said, Oh, we know Mukul very well. Mukul's done this before. And Mukul's, you know, he 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 he'll be honest enough to tell you what he knows and what he doesn't know. Right? So yeah, don't be afraid and just reach out. And that's a good point. And and read. Right? And read as much as you can. But talking to people is much better than is is, is very good also because experiences are very different from literature. And and and, and we're nearing the end of the, the conversation and, and it's been a fascinating conversation. I Mukul, I just I want to ask sort of what next? I mean, what what is your what is what is your plan for the rest of your career, and what does it look like when when you, when you're done? I mean, what is what is that what is that sort of milestone or big thing you're working towards, or or if not, I mean, what where are you going? I mean, let's let's say you know, what does the future look like for you? Um, well, the future it looks like hopefully being within the startup and venture space, yeah. um, supporting um, uh, 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 supporting. Ventures raise capital, supporting new technology businesses becoming the next unicorns. I, I, I wouldn't say unicorns, but the next success story, right? Um, and so I, I see myself in the venture space for the next five years, uh, and at least the next five or ten years. And I, I see no end point because I think I, I would be, you know, I, I think I'm, I'm I'm too relentless and too restless to stop. <laughs> so I think that's the bit, you know. I I, I see myself within what I do because I, I I thoroughly enjoy what I do at the moment. Looking at new opportunities, matching new opportunities to capital, creating capital for people who find new opportunities. So I love the place where I am in. I get to meet more people, learn more things, and uh, hopefully I can continue doing that for till I drop dead. <coughs> and you know, uh, you know, it's not all philanthropic. Hopefully, make some money on the way. I mean, it's it's wonderful because uh, I'm sure there are many people just as as passionate about what they do, but there are also many people out there that. That got got themselves stuck in a place that um, that they're not enjoying anymore, and they 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 you know they're not finding that inspiration and that 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 pleasure. Uh, it appears to me that you wake up every day excited, happy. You seem to you seem to be very um, driven and directed, and 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 you love your learning and so on. And and I mean that's massively inspirational. I think for for anybody listening to 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 the show, I'm hoping that they can take that enthusiasm for life. Um, as well as all the great information you've shared today. So I don't know if you had a finishing comment on that, and uh, then I want to wrap up. 
hopefully i was um, coherent enough because as, as you know this today was a funny day it's snowing and it's quite nippy today but um yeah i, I, I hopefully i was coherent enough and you know uh, i was trying to tell uh, give you as much without actually sharing actual deals which obviously i uh, yeah. but hopefully you know uh, people can get an insight into what you know what my career has been and what i've been doing and um, you know and if anybody wants to reach out i'm i'm always happy to speak to people that, that my door is always open um you know I, i i i give a lot of pro bono advices to a lot of ventures a lot of uh, startups and that's because i think the good people who put their you know lives on you know, the line to make something great something that could be the next big thing mm. so i have an immense amount of respect for that uh, lovely okay so what what we'll do mukul is um and we're going to share your links to to various things share your information and so ever wants to contact you they they obviously welcome to and uh, and and i wish you absolutely everything of the best going forward and I, i really would like to invite you back on the show in 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 sometime in the future and and see how you're getting along and and what what you know what's happened next in your life brilliant sounds great and i'd be delighted to come back thanks for thanks for the opportunity yeah thank you very much great okay so hi everybody this is dudley again and if you need help with a future or existing post merger integration I want to invite you to arrange a free no obligation meeting with us. During the meeting, we'll find out exactly what you need, what your challenges are, and we'll explain how our unique PMI slipstream method can help you. Simply call us or visit mergerintegration.co.uk. That's mergerintegration.co.uk or come to our website skillfulpursuit.com.